listening to The Apple Slice, an educational podcast about education. Hi, welcome to The Apple Slice. I'm Sandy. And I'm Melissa. Today is one of those heavier topics that we're covering. Would you agree? Yeah, it's heavy, but I almost refuse to be heavy. Like, I'm just like... Well, we're going to cover it in a very light light way, (laughs) but um, we're going to be talking about a theorist, Mm -hmm. which is very important. It is. Yeah. Our sweet Lev Vygotsky. Yes. So for those of you in education majors, you should definitely know that name, Vygotsky. Yeah. And I I think it's kind of... uh, even more prevalent in maybe our younger grades, preschool. I feel like preschool, kindergarten, first grade teachers like love Lev. They love Lev. They can make shirts. I love Lev. <laughs> they can make shirts. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Mr. Vygotsky. Okay. So he was born in 1896 and he died in 1934. So he's like long gone dead. Um, he was born in Orsha. Belarus, and at that time it was part of the Russian Empire, mm-hmm. um, into a non-religious middle-class Russian Jewish family. Um, and if you um, think about some of the things that was happening in the world, being a Jewish, uh, coming from a Jewish family, maybe was not like in his best bet. Why do you say that? Um, with like Marxism and, and all of that, like oh. it just wasn't. It wasn't the influence. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, his father was a banker, and so he was middle class. He wasn't by any means, you know, like eating breadcrumbs or anything. Mm-hmm. Just a solid middle class family. Okay. Um, and then um, in 1913, he uh, gained admittance into Moscow University. Through a Jewish lottery, which I think is really cool. Like, mm-hmm. what are the chances of this guy getting in? Um, it was 3% of Jewish students um, got in. So that's like an affirmative action thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you, so that really tells me that um, to be Jewish at this time really was not in his best interest. You know, if only 3% of them. Could. But he made it in. He made it in. Um, and, um, and, and so he got to go to St. Petersburg University. Okay. Um, am I just going to like do the history? Well, you're doing great with the okay. history, so keep going. <laughs> um, graduated in 1917, um, where he returned home to, um, Gomel. That's where his family was leaving, living at that time. <clears throat> and, um, that is where he continued to live, um, after the socialist revolution, Um, And then during the German occupation um, in his little town, there is no information about what happens Mm to him. Um, If I know anything about history, maybe it was his best bet to, and I'm sure he was still thinking and writing and researching, Mm -hmm. but I bet he was just like playing it cool, Mm -hmm. like, you know, trying to stay alive. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then by the early 1920s, um, he changed his Jewish sounding birth name. Um, from Lev, I cannot say this. I he had a very Jewish sounding name to um, something a little bit um, uh, easier for me to say, but like he he changed it to the Vygotsky that we know today, and that so I can't even say it. He changed his name. Yes. Period. So he is known <laughs> as Vygotsky. That's how people refer to him. Now. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
And then um, shortly thereafter, um, he took part in the second all-Russian psycho neurological oh my um, <laughs> um, Congress. And um, soon after that, you could tell he was rubbing some shoulders with some good people there. He received an invitation um, to become a research fellow at the Institute in Moscow, the Psychological Institute in Moscow. And he moved to Moscow with his new wife, Rosa. And uh, about a year later, he had completed his dissertation, and it was on the psychology of art, although it was not published until the 60s. All right. Why would he write his dissertation and it not be published until the 60s? Uh, because I think people were actually late to the party figuring out about this guy's theories. Oh. So, um, because actually I read that some of his work and his writings are still being translated today. Yeah, I read that some of them early on were translated wrong. Like people were putting too much of their own thoughts mm. into it. So, I could easily that be called, It was like the Vygotsky Circle. Did you have anything on that? No. It's like clans of people that just like love him. Oh. And sometimes they love him so much they've twisted like what he has said. It's very interesting. That is interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Any more history on him? Um, I'm sure. Um, in 1925, he made his first and only trip abroad. Hmm. Isn't that weird? Mm-hmm. Like, um, to London. And it was the Congress on Education of the Deaf. Um, and upon his return to the Soviet Union, he was hospitalized due to a relapse of tuberculosis, which tells me he's had it before. And that is actually what he's going to die of. Not that bout of tuber- tuberculosis, um, but, um, but that's eventually what he's going to die of in 1934. But he remained like really sick and out of work until the end of 1926. So so the big thing, I think, with Vygotsky, when you're kind of pocketing your theorists, is that he died at 38 years old. Right. Like, so you're prime. He was just kind of really going and getting yes. it done. Yeah. And that, I think, probably a lot of people that follow his work were are sad by the fact that this man probably had a lot more to offer. I agree. And and I read cut short. that um, between 26 and th- 1926 and 1930, um, at the end of his life, mm-hmm. um, he kind of was really depressed and he was questioning himself. And which realistically, I think that happens to all good researchers. And exactly. Like, you know, um, but. Um, right before he died, it seems like he was kind of on an upswing again. But then, like you said, he never got to mm-hmm. basically finish his thoughts. So I think people that worked with him and under him and beside him, they tried to continue his work mm-hmm. and the essence of what he was trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it, it was pretty different considering what was being thought about cognitive development at that time. I guess we should actually say what he thought. That's a good idea. <laughs> so um, his foundational research and theory is in cognitive development, mm-hmm. and it has been transferred and it has evolved into what today we call social development theory. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Um, and if, if you're looking at kind of how people thought people learned at that time, he was different, which I'm sure that um, especially growing up where he was growing up, doing his research where he was doing his research – Yes. The idea of social 
and cognitive being linked. Exactly. It's really odd. So so the theory place is kind of where I like to live. And um, did you realize that he and Piaget were actually researching at the same time? Yes, but they didn't know. Correct. They didn't know Mm -hmm. each other. But Piaget's work is 20s and 30s. Vygotsky's as well. Um, But they two completely different ideas, right? So I know we've done a previous podcast on Piaget, so I'll just highlight the difference here. So Piaget, he thought that children's development had to happen. They had to proceed through these stages before they could learn new things. Uh Vygotsky thought that learning, you have to have learning in order to develop. Because this is, I mean, this is just my like sociology side that always comes out is I wonder, okay, so Vygotsky is growing up, you know, in the Russian empire and he got his thinking, although it's kind of contradictory there from how I imagine the Russian Empire mm-hmm. and then Piaget dang it where was Switzerland he from? Switzerland mm-hmm. um, and also just like how how the families how they were raised as boys and what their parents did to them essentially um, or what mark they left on them yeah it's just it's just interesting yeah so I I'm my own research, I tend to cite Vygotsky because I am one that definitely believes that there's a social aspect to oh, yeah. learning, mm-hmm. um, the, the situation you're in, the context around mm-hmm. actually influences what you're learning, how you're developing, how you're progressing. I cannot think any way but that way. Right. I, it, you know, I, I always tell my theory kids, you have a theory of your own. Mm-hmm. And um, really what I try to get them to do is attach it to someone else's theory. You know? Because you have a way you think about. I have always thought this way. Mm-hmm. And then I met Mr. Lev here. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, he's actually proven this. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just my thoughts and my feelings about teaching and people. So... He, he, he supports my thinking. And, and I, I have been, you know, I've done research studies in different classrooms, and, and I can see just there is a different classroom context from teacher to teacher. Yes. Okay, so some mm-hmm. teachers, they don't mind if kids talk to each other mm-hmm. quietly, if they get their work done, whatever. Then you have some teachers who it's absolutely no talking at any time, even in schools that, like, have lunchrooms where they don't let the kids talk and mm-hmm. socialize. Goodness. I mean, all of that yeah. is having an impact. Yes. In one way or another. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I am very biased in this conversation because I feel like, how can anybody see that? I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that was his point. And, and of course, uh, Vygotsky was always saying that ki- kids, as they're developing, they're trying to make meaning mm-hmm. of what's around them. Mm-hmm. And it's through this sense of, Community, which I'm going to use that word loosely, but like community is in those around you Mm -hmm. that support that learning Mm -hmm. and that process. Mm -hmm. Um, He there's a quote here that says it kind of goes with that. Um, Every function in the child's cultural development appears twice: first on the social level, level, and later on the individual level. First between people, and then inside the child. Mm. And I can, you know, it really, really does. Even when I am, um, even when I'm interacting with our our college age kids, or right. even my own child, my interaction just doesn't stop there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many times where my child would bring up to me what I said, what my eyebrows look like <clears throat> when I said something. You know, everything is very twofold, and so um, um, right that that you know. 
that culture, that, that social interaction goes a lot deeper than mm-hmm. we think it does. But we can twist it and we can use it for good when it comes to learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's also well known for the zone of proximal development. Mm-hmm. So um, that is when you talk about you're trying to learn something new. We'll apply it to the classroom. You're trying to learn something new. And there's this zone of learning where you need a little bit of teacher support in order to do it well. But then eventually you guide them to a process where students can now do it independently. Mm-hmm. And then now they're back to like, okay, it's time to teach them something new now. And then you have another level right. of um, development where you're supporting and guiding until they can get that. So it's always, it's a continual Yeah. Like shift. I always think about it um, in Virginia, we, um, there was a trail that was really hard to hike because you had to have, well, I needed to have more than one person to help because... I, you know, someone would stand on my knee to get over a certain rock and then they would pull me up the rock, but you needed two people to make your way there without that ZPD, without that Uh other person, Mm -hmm. I could have never made it to the top of the rock by myself. But you know, we got to the top of the rock. We walked down the path a little bit more and guess what? There was another rock. Mm -hmm. And so we needed each other to pull each other up, which I don't know. If you are just lecturing to your kiddos, you're just teaching them and you're not sitting at their desk with them or sitting on the floor with them or touching them or explaining stuff to them, then you're missing something. You know, that that ZPD, that zone of proximal development can't happen unless you're interacting with them in a social context. Right. And then the application is the classroom is trying to apply that from one individual student to a whole classroom of students. Mm -hmm. So you almost have that ZPD for an individual. And then there's also Mm -hmm. a ZPD for your classroom Mm -hmm. as a whole. And it's a tricky balance. And that's why it's so important, I think, that we teach our undergrads about his concepts Oh, yeah. Because that, you know, well, have you ever heard that I do it, we do it? Yes. You know. I do, I do, we do, we do, you do, I do, you do. (laughs) Well, I haven't quite heard it like that. (laughs) But this, like, let me model for you first. Yes. Then let's do it together, and now you do it on your own. And that's a very simplified version of what we're talking about. That is how you teach math. That's how you teach a lot of things. Yeah, like yeah. That, that, that's how I survived teaching fifth graders math. Yes. Yeah. Over and over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also the concept of the more knowledgeable other. Mm-hmm. Um, it refers to anybody who has a better understanding or a higher ability level than the learner. Um, and this can be um, a peer. Um, it can be an older sibling. It could be a coach. It can be an adult. Um, it can even... Um, be a younger person if, you know, um, I know that um, my husband is the more knowledgeable other to all of our parents when it comes to technology. <laughs> and so it doesn't have to be someone um, older. It just has to be someone with, someone with a higher ability level that can, again, pull you up that mountain mm-hmm. or help you um, gain knowledge. And I just like the concept of, you know... It, it, Yes, we're talking about child development, but really isn't that the application for everything? I lo- To me, it's just humans. Right. Humans need other humans, mm-hmm. and that's how we get better, and that's how we progress is by is interacting with each other and right. learning from each other. Because if I want to learn about something I don't know about, I'm going to do best if I go find someone who right. knows about it, and then they help me, and right. then I, you know, right. Yeah. If Melissa wants to teach me how to sew... 
we're going to have a zone of proximal development. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I just love his theories. And it is a shame that he died so young. Because I would have right. loved to see, you know, he had his little early life crisis. And I'm sure he would have had a midlife crisis. And I'm sure he would have changed a little bit. But I would have liked to see how he developed And I think his um, theories can also be applied to the importance of collaboration Mm -hmm. in our classrooms, Mm -hmm. learning from each other, Mm -hmm. um, letting them work in groups, letting them socialize. Yes, yes. The importance of that. And this is coming from someone who is a control freak. Mm -hmm. Like you can completely agree with I am a control freak. It is important that they're talking and it is important that they are sharing their own personal background and their beliefs and um, and being able to work together, their mm-hmm. own their knowledge is only going to go so far, and they're only going to own a certain percentage. If you are reading books independently, you're reading out of a basil to them. You're lecturing. You're showing them some type of presentation. As soon as they get to own their knowledge through conversation or applying it back to their own life or even um, their peer teaching it to them it means more right and it's all about that meaning making yeah Mm -hmm. now i will say that vygotsky's work hasn't received as much scrutiny or like Mm -hmm. challenge as other theorists Mm -hmm. maybe such as piaget piaget because um mainly because of the translation issue. Yes. (laughs) You know, so they're just, Mm -hmm. I mean, even though we say 1930-something sounds like a long time ago, research is a process. It is. Um, So there are some of his concepts that are universally accepted, Mm -hmm. but I think that we will continue as the future goes to see more people, like, critically looking at what he has to say. And there has been a lot of researchers who have taken um, his concept as a diving board. Mm-hmm. Like I will own part of this, and I'm going to take it further. Yeah. So because he he even has a whole uh, whole section on language and language development mm-hmm. and what is the purpose of language and in young children, and I I see that being developed further. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I love it. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Any but other important facts that no, we should highlight? That really is. It is very heavy, and I think we could have had a 25-minute episode or a 2-hour and 25-minute episode. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that really is Vygot- – this should be called Vygotsky in a nutshell. Like, it, this is really um, just the tip of the iceberg. If you're interested in learning more about him, go for it. There are tons of publications out there. There are tons of people that have written books based on his theory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but if you're a teacher, you're definitely mm-hmm. going to see Vygotsky, Zone of Proximal Development, Scaffolding, and the More Knowledgeable Other. Those are all very relevant yeah, concepts. Yeah, super right buzzwords with him. So he ends up dying, again, of tuberculosis. Okay. June 11th, 1934, age 37, um, in Mas- Moscow. In um, one of his last private notebook entries um, said this. He said, this is, the fir- this is the final thing I have done in psychology. And I, like Moses, die at the summit, having glimpsed mm. the promised land, but without setting foot on it. Farewell, dear creations. The rest is silence. Like, he knew it was coming. Um, hmm. But I don't know. I don't think 
that he had his summit. I think that he was trying to make himself feel better. Which... <laughs> well, that's harsh, Melissa. No, I, I, I'm saying that I think he could have climbed higher if he had lived longer. Yeah. I think he was saying, I've done it. I'm done. Too bad there wasn't a shot, a pill, or something. <laughs> it was 1934. It was. <laughs> that was right. so. so, all right. Well, that is Mr. Lev Vygotsky in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have any stories about how he has uh, maybe affected your classroom in a positive way, um, let us know. And we'll add this to our theorist suite. Woohoo! Bye, guys. For more information, including show notes, visit us at theappleslice.info.